One of the biggest questions that we keep wrestling with in our house is how can we connect with the people we love when we can't really connect with them? Virtual meetings are great and all, but they aren't really cutting it. We're a family of rule followers, so we've probably been more strict than most when it comes to locking ourselves down. But last weekend, we decided to invite my mom over to visit the kids with one of those socially distanced gathering everyone's having these days. We were going to be really good about it. She was even going to bring her own chair and her own wine glass, and we would just hang out, sitting at least six feet apart. And we prepped the kids. No hugging Grandma Ruthie, no climbing on Grandma Ruthie, no touching Grandma Ruthie. In fact, just admire Grandma Ruthie from a distance, really. And they were on board. My middle child, Vilu, even got dressed up for the visit, running up to her room to find an outfit that Grandma Ruthie had given her. Surprisingly thoughtful for that one. But about an hour before the get-together, Grandma Ruthie called all worried. She wanted to know what would happen if she had to go to the bathroom. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't really want her in the house, and she didn't want to go in the house. My daughter's idea was for Grandma Ruthie just to bring a bucket. But eventually we decided to risk it, and it was great. No buckets necessary. We had a fun time, but after about an hour, she packed up her chair and went back home. Before all this, when my mom came over, we'd really hang out. She'd cuddle with the kids, read them books, do crafts with them while Leanne and I got things done. They'd climb all over her, they'd make massive messes together, and they'd have a blast. They love their Grandma Ruthie. This new normal is lame. This new normal isn't normal at all. This is Beyond Normal. Beyond Normal explores what it takes to cultivate and maintain our well-being in this time of national and global crisis. My name is Tom Godfrey. My team at The Big No and I are going to bring you conversations with thought leaders across different facets of health and well-being so we can understand and teach others what it takes to be well in today's world. Today, I want to talk about loneliness. If there's one thing I've learned from all the health and well-being content we've created at The Big No, is that Meaningful human connection is essential to our well-being. Longevity, purpose, resiliency, health. People do better in all these aspects in their lives when they have strong, supportive social connections. And of course, it's really hard to thrive when you don't. But we're in a situation right now where, for the sake of our health and the health of everyone else, we're cutting ourselves off from each other. Some of us are isolating with family, which helps but I know I miss my friends. I suppose, though, I'm lucky. A lot of people out there are alone. Of course, we have the internet, and that helps, but that's not the same. And it's also not a solution available to everyone. So I'm just curious what all of this might be doing to us. So I thought we'd invite someone who could really shed some light on how all this insular living might be having an effect. Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstedt is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, where she runs their Social Connections and Health Research Laboratory. Her research focuses on the long-term health effects of social connection. Her work has been seminal in the recognition of social isolation and loneliness as risk factors for early mortality. Dr. Holt-Lundstedt testified to Congress and provided expert recommendations for the U.S. Surgeon General Emotional Well-Being in America Initiative. She has won several awards in recognition for her work. It has been covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, Scientific American, This American Life, The Today Show, and now here on our little podcast, Dr. Holt Lundstad, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I've been really looking forward to this conversation, Julianne, because I feel like what you study couldn't be more relevant I know you've been researching the importance of social connection and the dangers of social isolation for a while now. And I know that 
before all this, that loneliness was a growing problem for our country. So maybe before we get started talking about current events, can you talk to me about the state of loneliness in the U.S. before all this, and maybe share a bit of what you found to be the danger of too much isolation? I've been studying the importance of our our social relationships and and the potential risks associated with lacking social connection, being isolated or lonely for most of my career. And of course, others have studied this before I came along. So we have decades of evidence that link this to objective health outcomes, not just mental health, but physical health and cognitive health as well. There have been several surveys on this topic, but Even prior to our our current pandemic, what these surveys suggested is that anywhere from, you know, one in five adults to over 50% of adults consider themselves to be lonely. So this is having a a significant impact on a major part of our our community and, and the population, even prior to the pandemic. Well, you said that there are health risks, physical health, mental health, and cognitive health. So what are those risks exactly? And I assume you're talking about chronic loneliness. What is that? And then um, what are those real health risks? Yeah. So I guess I'll start with, you know, some of my research that that looked at this um, in terms of our, our risk for premature death. We were able to uh, combine all of the available data worldwide. And what we found was that those who reported greater loneliness had a 26% increased risk of earlier death, those who are socially isolated, a 29%, and those who live alone, a 32% increased risk of earlier death. Now, conversely, I did another meta-analysis that looked at the protective effects of being socially connected. What we were able to find from that was that people who are more socially connected had a 50% increase odds of survival. To put that into perspective, when we inverse that, lacking social connection carries a risk similar to the risk of smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day, uh, exceeds the risk associated with obesity, physical inactivity, and air pollution. What this data suggests is that our relationships can have a very powerful protective effect and that it is comparable to these other kinds of things that we take very seriously for our health and that we should take this just as seriously. In addition to mortality risk, we have evidence that being socially isolated and and being lonely can increase our risk for heart attack, stroke, type two diabetes. It's also been linked to increases in blood pressure and heart rate and stress hormones, inflammation. So We have good evidence of the biological pathways by which our relationships also can impact these physical health outcomes. You've clearly made a distinction between social isolation, living alone, and loneliness. Why do you compare this in those three ways and what are the, what's the real difference? I'm glad you asked because these are related, but are independent. So for instance, you can live alone, but not necessarily be isolated or lonely. Objectively, being alone certainly increases your risk of feeling alone. 
but you can be alone and not feel lonely. You might take pleasure in that solitude. Conversely, you might be surrounded by others and still feel profoundly lonely. You know, there's the saying alone in a crowd. Well, let's talk about it in terms of what's going on right now. I feel like one of the catch 22s that we're in right now, I guess, if that's a good way to say it, is that when we're stressed, which many of us are, some more than others, you know, what we really need is, is social connection, right? Like that's one of the best ways, at least for me to like de-stress is to connect with people that I care about most. And yet the guidance goes against that. How do we address that issue or help people with that issue of that, like that need to connect, but also being told you can't actually, that's actually more harmful. I mean, this is so, what I think is so just interesting and ironic about the whole situation. You know, what you're saying, I think perfectly captures not only people's personal experiences, but uh, the science behind it. And we are social beings. We're not meant to be alone. <laughs> um, and our bodies respond in ways, you know, trigger us to reconnect to others. So for instance, scientists have argued that loneliness is like hunger or thirst, that it is a biological drive. So like hunger motivates us to seek out food and thirst motivates us to seek out water, that loneliness motivates us to seek out others because it's adaptive to be around others. Throughout history, it's we've been, there are safety in numbers. Um, we can rely on others in the face of threats, particularly trusted others, right? You know, back to the analogy of, of it being like thirst, it's like we're suddenly being told that the water is not safe to drink, <laughs> even though we need water to survive. <laughs> and so it's, you know, we're put in this very uh, difficult kind of situation where we, we have these presumably competing kinds of instincts to survive and to protect ourselves just like we would have to find other sources of hydration, um, you know, we need to somehow find ways to connect in these very, very strange circumstances. Early on in my research, much of what I was looking at is the effect of our social relationships during times of stress, how our relationships can help us cope with stress. And so like you said, when we're under stress, our natural tendency is to, to seek out others. And so one of the things that we learned from these studies is that having supportive relationships can help dampen or buffer these physiological responses. So what we would find is that even though we would expose a group of participants to the exact same stressor, that those who had more supportive relationships in their network were much less reactive to the stress than those who did not or who had fewer. Other research supports that this perceptions of support, um, having supportive people in your network can have a protective effect in terms of coping with stress. Even how we interpret the situation, uh, the situation may be much scarier, much more threatening, uh, much more overwhelming if we feel like we have to handle it entirely on our own. 
But if we perceive that there are others that we can turn to, whether it's you know, emotional support or just simply knowing, gosh, I, I know if I need to, I've got a neighbor who you know could help me get groceries if I needed to, or friends or family who, who would help me out if, if I needed it, just knowing that they're available, even if you haven't tangibly gotten something from them. Um, just knowing that they've got your back can be enough to help dampen some of those responses. And so this, I think, really highlights the potential for us to be that source of support for others. Research shows that providing support can actually provide greater benefits than even receiving support. If we can reach out to other people, ask them how they're doing, see what their needs might be, that this can not only help them, but can help you get through this as well. Okay. I've got a weird question. Awesome. How would I know? <laughs> All my questions are weird questions, right? Um, how would I know if what I'm experiencing or feeling is loneliness or the kind of loneliness that I should be concerned about? Right. Um, so... Loneliness is something that I mean. First of all, if you if you recognize if you know you feel lonely, then then you probably are. <laughs> um, so in our research, we've done uh, studies where people are asked directly the extent to which they feel lonely or how often they feel lonely. But there's also a lot of shame and stigma around uh, loneliness, or some people may lack some self-awareness. And so there are a lot of measures that look at this more indirectly. And so we'll ask things like, to what extent do you feel you lack companionship? Uh, do you feel left out? So these are more indirect kinds of, of questions rather than asking directly. If you're concerned that you are, you know, that's probably that that very normal, distressing feeling that is just like hunger or thirst. It's nothing to feel shame about um, at all. We all feel lonely from time to time. But you asked, you know, when should it be concerning? <laughs> uh, when you start feeling like this most of the time that should be a, a, a signal to you that this is becoming much more problematic. And also it, to the extent to which you also see that it is affecting your life. Is it affecting your ability to function? Is it affecting your sleep? Is it affecting your ability to interact with others or to get your work done? As you, you notice any you know, potential broader effects on your life, that might suggest that this is becoming a much more concerning issue. I've, I think every episode that I've done so far, I keep mentioning my three kids. People are probably getting sick of me bringing this up, but I have three kids. And I, so I keep, I keep looking at this through their eyes. And I'm just really curious, you know, what does the research say about kids and loneliness? Do you have any advice for parents uh, around helping their kids build or maintain meaningful connections, you know, especially right now, but even like beyond and how that uh, might uh, inform their growth and development. Right. So my research hasn't focused specifically on, on children, but certainly there is research on children as well as uh, adolescents. And this is an issue that cuts across the lifespan. So children and, and adolescents, this is a stage when typically 
social network sizes are expanding and um, kids and, and adolescents are often building new relationships. And this is also a time for learning social skills. We are now entering into this very unprecedented period of time where individuals' ability to interact socially is being profoundly disrupted. You know, it's unclear to what extent this is going to have an impact on everyone for that matter, um, long-term, but also, you know, for kids that that are still developing a lot of these kinds of skills. It'll be important for parents to regularly check in with their kids to see how they're doing. Children often may not be able to communicate to you just openly, I'm feeling lonely, or (laughs) um, oftentimes uh, kids may not even recognize how they're feeling. And so parents will often see it more behaviorally, right? (laughs) Um, And so parents should look for changes in behavior to see if this is something that, that may be a bit more concerning. We ought to think about ways that we can still foster social connections for our kids with their friends. And that's, that's tough, right? Um, Because, you know, whether it's the sports that they were involved in, or other kinds of activities they were involved in are probably all canceled. Schools um, been canceled. But uh, if, if you can find ways for them to connect with their friends, either online or over the phone, or if there's, uh, you know, if they have a friend across the street that they could play a game where one's on one side of the street and the other one's on the other side of the street, you know, somehow at a, at a, at a safe distance, you know, we're going to have to get creative. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's concern. My son has every day at two o'clock, he and his pals get together and it started off where this started six weeks ago when we first started having a shelter in place. And so every day at two o'clock, they'd get online and the it was a Lego challenge. And so they would have to, somebody would say, okay, today you need to build a monster. And that's, that was the Lego challenge. And then they would all meet online and share their designs. And then after they shared their designs, they would all get on some virtual gaming platform and play video games. And now all it is, is they've stopped the Legos. And now all they do is play video games. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little annoyed by that because I like the creative challenge of the Legos, but he loves that one hour of time so much that I'm like, whatever, just go play your video games. (laughs) So, Yeah, I I have two teenage sons and, you know, they were, I I was complaining that they were playing video games and they're like, but mom, this is how I'm connecting (laughs) to my friends. (laughs) They could totally use that against you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, I've also been thinking, you know, there's a big difference between somebody in my situation who I have friends, but they're, I just not seeing them versus people that are like legitimately lacking deep personal connections. I don't know exactly what I'm asking, but um, I feel like, you know, this when this gets over, there's going to be a bunch of us that just like can kind of almost go back to, you know, the, the way they were before. I'm sure it's going to be different, but there's going to be a lot of people for whom uh, the way they were before was also really lonesome. How do you help somebody that is experiencing that kind of loneliness and lack of social connection? I mean, one of the things that I hope will come of this is increasing empathy and compassion for those who are chronically isolated, 
you know, even before this and, and will continue to be so after this. You know, thankfully, I'm seeing some wonderful examples of compassion and greater attention to those who are most vulnerable in, in people's communities, looking out for those who may, you know, whether they're older people in their community or those who are living alone or may have uh, existing health conditions. But many people who are experiencing this now will continue to. You're right. We need to find a way to help individuals. As we are experiencing a bit of what this feels like, and we are being put, you know, we're now having to, you know, walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak, right? <laughs> um, we know a little bit of what it's like. And by this, we may be able to come up with better solutions than we've had in the past. You know, from a scientific standpoint, we have decades of research really documenting the robust effects that this has on our health. But when it comes to identifying strategies that, for instance, organizations can use to help people who are um, particularly at risk. We haven't been as good at finding ways to, in essence, mimic the kinds of benefits we get from existing relationships. And, you know, it, it's hard to just prescribe someone a friend. Um, <laughs> You know, friendship is built over time um, and, you know, it can't be forced. <laughs> um, and so that becomes a huge challenge. My hope is that because each of us has experienced a bit of this, that we may start thinking about additional, more creative, innovative ways that we can help from, you know, individuals to communities to even more institutional kinds of policies and practices that can really begin to help those who are most vulnerable. You know, it's really interesting, that idea of prescribing someone a friend, because that was, that was going to kind of be my next question, which is, you know, if somebody, because often, you know, so there's what we can do to help people, but also like, what guidance do you give someone who feels like they lack social connections? So first of all, I mean, it's important to recognize that people can become isolated or lonely for a variety of reasons. And so the underlying cause of that may differ from person to person. And so the same approach may not necessarily work for everybody. And that's probably why some of our efforts have been a bit challenging because a one size fits all approach probably isn't going to cut it, right? What may be causing a child's loneliness may be very different from, say, your loneliness, uh, someone who's lost a spouse versus someone who has a chronic health condition that has a hard time getting out. We have to be sensitive to what the circumstances are for, for each person. So I mean, one thing that research has, has looked at in terms of people who experience chronic loneliness is that um, it also can potentially have a cognitive component. Uh, research has found tendency for an increased negative cognitive bias. So what this means is that when we're interacting with someone and there may be some kind of ambiguous social response, 
So an example might be you text a, a buddy and they don't get right back to you. <laughs> um, perhaps you jump to the automatic conclusion of, oh, they are ignoring me or they thought what I had to say was stupid or, you know, we kind of jump to those negative conclusions. And we all have done that from time to time, right? When we have this negative cognitive bias and we assume that, then our subsequent interactions aren't as friendly, which then in turn elicit a less friendly response. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. One of the things that I hope will come from, you know, the current pandemic and the current situation is that there is this greater recognition, at least I'm seeing anecdotally, that everyone's struggling. <laughs> you know, um, it might be in completely different ways, but we seem to be a little bit more forgiving and just assuming the best rather than the worst. Um, and so if someone's short with you, giving them a break, right? <laughs> you have no idea what they're going through. And in reality, even before this, we all have struggles, right? Um, much more unseen. And so if we can learn to give people a break, give people the benefit of the doubt, not only cognitively will we take things less personally and it will be less distressing to us, but it will foster more positive interactions between us and others that can um, eliminate some of those hurdles and barriers that sometimes get in the way when we're trying to connect with others. Really good advice. Um, okay, Julianne, we're getting near the end. I always ask, uh, I mean, you've already given us several uh, ideas and things to go do, but I want to end every episode with some sort of call to action, some activity, a simple thing we can ask people to put into practice today that helps them move towards better in whatever it is we're talking about today. We're talking about loneliness. So uh, can you give us something to do or give our audience something they might do to feel less lonely, help others feel less lonely, what have you? A very simple thing that anyone can do is to express gratitude to someone you care about. This expression of gratitude will not only increase your sense of connection with that person, but also decrease your sense of loneliness. And so reaching out to someone and telling them how much they mean to you. And maybe it's, I wish we could be doing this together. We have so much fun or whatever it might be, but really letting someone know how much you care about them and how grateful you are to have them as part of your life. This will be one tiny small step that can help strengthen those bonds between the two of you and help both of you feel better today. And, and hopefully with continued action and, and connection, we can make that last even longer. Well, thank you so much, Julianne. I really appreciate uh, you and your research and all you're doing to help people kind of address a really sad and scary emotion that is loneliness and life circumstance that is loneliness. So I really appreciate you for that. That brings us to our close. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Julianne Holt-Lundstad, for sharing her amazing research and wisdom with us today. Thanks, Julianne. It was really fun to chat. Thank you. It was my pleasure to chat with you and to help in any small way that I possibly can. I think it was a big way. Uh, Julianne, if people want to connect with you or learn more from you, how might they do that? 
They can visit my website at julianneholtlundstad.byu.edu, or they can um, connect with me on Twitter at jholtlundstad. I hope they all do that. Excellent. Thanks again, Julianne, and take care. Look, I know what we all want. We all just want to get back to normal, but we have to accept that normal, that's over. And if we really think about it, for a lot of us, normal wasn't working in the first place. Normal was stressing us out. Normal was making us sad, normal was making us sick, and normal was making us lonely. We can do way better than normal. Let's get Beyond Normal. Beyond Normal is a production of The Big No, where renowned experts teach the skills of health and well-being on demand. You can learn more about our licensable and custom health content solutions at thebigno.com. That's the big K-N-O-W.com. The Big No would love to hear your personal stories about how all this coronavirus nonsense is affecting you right now. We may feature your stories in an upcoming episode. If you're up for it, simply use any audio recording device you have handy and capture a few minutes of your thoughts, feelings, fears, hopes, what have you, and email that recording to beyondnormal at thebigno.com. Thanks in advance for doing that. Beyond Normal is produced by Nate Matson. Assistant producer is TMR. Our theme music is from premiumbeat.com. The show is edited by Damon Taylor. I'm your host, Tom Godfrey. Goodbye.